This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Mafiotes here. Today, our usual Friday newsroom team is away, so we are bringing you a special edition of Full Story. Throughout the campaign, Guardian Australia's political editor, Catherine Murphy, and the Guardian politics team have been answering questions about the election campaign and the issues that matter to you on the Australian Politics Podcast. There's a really wide range of questions that are submitted by Guardian readers, and they're answered by people with a front row seat to how politics works in Australia. These panels are some of our most popular podcasts, so if you're new to it, you should also subscribe to the Australian Politics Podcast and listen to a bunch of other episodes there. Okay, here's Murph. Hello, lovely people, and welcome. Uh, this is Australian Politics, and I'm Catherine Murphy. And with me in the pod cave... Amy Ramakis. Paul Carp, Daniel Hurst. Sarah Martin. Josh Butler. And, and we are answering your campaign questions. The campaign has moved into single-digit days. Woo-hoo. We are in the final <laughs> stretch. Uh, next week we will have the uh, acceleration that will be the uh, coalition campaign launch in Queensland. We will have costings. We will have final speeches to the National Press Club and then we will have the acceleration of the campaigns and uh, next week we will have Paul Carp and Josh Butler out on the road with the leaders. How exciting. Oh, well, I think it'll be a little bit crazy. Anyway, on to the questions. Again, congratulations. Masses of questions again. So if you do not have your question in the lineup today, I apologise in advance. So, Sarah, we're going to start with you and Megan. Uh, Megan wants to know, if the LNP got back in, how do you think their cabinet would look like and operate, given the uh, number of divisions and scandal-plagued MPs? Do you actually think they could function? <laughs> Thanks, Megan, for the question. Um, well, I think we've talked about on this pod uh, previously, it probably depends on how that cabinet looks and who's in there and is does Josh Frydenberg win his seat? Does Peter Dutton win his seat? Who is the, I mean, you know, obviously, if they win, um, Morrison stays the Prime Minister. Um, but, uh, you know, if Josh doesn't win his seat, then who becomes the Treasurer? Um, reshuffle ensues. Um, obviously, reshuffles have the potential to get people's noses out of joint. Um, we had confirmation from the Prime Minister, uh, was that today or last night? I don't know. My brain doesn't work last, anymore. Last um, night. That, the, <laughs> that Alan Tudge would return as Education yeah, Minister. I it was and last to be night. honest, yeah. um, I, I've been so um, confused by the Tudge in, out, maybe, is he a minister, not a minister? Is, he's got a warrant, he hasn't got a warrant. Um, I actually didn't sort of clock immediately that that was actually news that that Morrison had confirmed <laughs> that he, was back, he would definitely well, be back been, as, as Education been, Minister. Yeah, Schroeder. Schrodinger's minister. Yes, yes. Um, yes. So well, Courtney Gould, I think, describes him as a cabinet backbencher. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, will they function? I mean, obviously, Barnaby Joyce is still going to be in there, and that always brings with it uh, its own challenges. Um, I suspect that they would function about as well as they have done in the <laughs> past term it's probably, of government. Probably a good way to leave it. And I'll just throw in a supplementary because I know there was one Twitter question to mm. this effect uh, that didn't quite make the lineup. But let's do it quickly. Let's just imagine a scenario where both Josh Frydenberg and Peter Dutton lose their seats. I think that's impossible, by the way. <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't think it is. Famous, famous last words. Highly unlikely. Uh, uh, so, But in that scenario, the coalition loses. This is Megan's scenario, the coalition wins. Let's do the losers one very quickly. So in the event 
uh, Morrison loses and the two leadership uh, aspirants lose their seats, quickly, fast, rapid-fire predictions, who's the leader of the Liberal Party? Amy. Stuart Robert. (laughs) (laughs) Paul. Paul Fletcher, just safe pair of hands. Okay, okay. Daniel. I don't know. Uh, Susan Lee. Okay, there we go. This is good. Okay, so I've actually committed a fair bit of brain time thinking about this, and I think it's either Angus Taylor or Dan Tian. Yeah, I, I think Dan Tian. I think I think Taylor. I think Taylor. Yeah. I think Taylor. But would, would Morrison go for another go around? I will, oh, he loses if it's a tight election. Let's say that they get like seventy-three seats or something. Oh. Doesn't feel short and sticks around for a second time. Would they, would, they, would they let him? Let him. Is the question. But oh. would he want to stick around? Well, that's yes. He's only fifty something. He's not that old. I, no. I think they're already thinking in their minds like, oh, should we have changed leader a few months ago? Because all these MPs are briefing on background. You know, oh, people love me. They mm. just hate Morrison. Yeah, that is true. Um, and and you know, they, they must be thinking like, could we have done better with a different leader? Imagine yeah. opposition leader Scott Morrison though. Well, well sorry, much, that, would much change. I was going to say, how different would that actually be? Anyway, anyway, let's keep rolling. And and obviously, we are on social media. All of us, we are very easy to track down. If you've got thoughts about who the next uh, Liberal leader will be in the event of a defeat of the Morrison government, do let us know. Anyway, moving on, Steph Durant, Sarah. Steph wants to know, uh, with the UAP now confirming they will preference the coalition over Labor in most seats, do you think this has the potential to alter the election result? Um, well, Steph, I think definitely it has the potential, but only in the event that it is a tight election and that there are very close results in key marginal seats. Um, and obviously, then yes, it, it can make a difference if we're talking, you know, a preference scramble and we're looking at seats that are decided by the last, you know, few hundred mm. or thousand votes or something like that. You know, there's been some study done at the last election where the UAP preferences made a difference. Um, the analysis showed that if preferences had split 50-50 rather than I think it was the 65-35 yeah, that they ended yeah. up splitting, then yeah. the only seat that would have stayed in Labor hands would have been the seat of Bass. It's it's questionable how much um, uh, people follow the how-to-vote cards of minor parties, but there's an interesting number that if, say, um, you know, 10% of people follow the how-to-vote card, then you need a, a primary vote of 5% to make a 0.5% difference to a margin. So Whoa, okay. in a close contest, then obviously 0.5% is not nothing. I think one of the unknowns of this election, we don't know where that UAP vote is concentrated. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it going to be consequential in a seat like... McEwen or Parramatta mm. or particularly some of those outer suburban seats that were particularly hard hit by lockdowns. Yeah. Um, so I think that is one of the unknowns in this election. Um, but, you know, if it's, if, as the polls suggest, Labor is on track for a, you know, modest majority, then it's unlikely to make a difference to the overall election result. Mm. Um, but obviously anything and literally anything could happen. Yeah. And, and, and do people follow the cards to begin with? Because, you know, UAP has actually uh, been more even-handed in bagging both major parties this time in terms of their ads. Yep. Now, what they're directing on their cards is, you know, beneficial to the to the Liberal Party in key seats. But, yeah, and we but people to... who've been absorbing these messages, like put everyone last, yeah. you know, yeah, pops uh, on for, all your for, houses. For, for so long, you know, are, are they following the card? Yeah. Well, well, no, that's an interesting question, but it's also the flow of preferences in the targeted seats is different to the impression the UAP has been creating for months because 
you know, there there is a less beneficial preferencing arrangement for Labor than uh, than the coalition in the, in the relevant seats. Mm. Uh, obviously, in aggregate, it may it may well be you know as uh, more as Clive Palmer and and Craig Kelly flag. But anyway, there we go. So watch that space, Steph. Paul, you're up. And on the issue of the last 72 hours, which has been wages, so I'm not surprised we had a bunch of questions on wages this week. From Carol Mansa to kick us off, uh, she has three questions. How independent is the Fair Work Commission? How are its members appointed? And has the LNP stacked it with LNP-leaning appointees? Paul. What the, the Fair Work Commission uh, is the industrial umpire and the appointments to that are quasi-judicial. So like a judge, they have tenure once you've been appointed to it. So you're quite independent, you know, once you get a gig on it. But bodies are only as as, as good as the, the um, processes of appointment. The coalition does have a very long streak of appointing people from employer uh, backgrounds. So uh, barristers or employment lawyers or in-house counsel uh, that represent employers uh, in industrial relations matters. Um, it is actually headed by uh, Justice Ian Ross, who is a Labor appointee though. So although you know, it, its numbers uh, are quite stacked with, um, you know, employer backgrounds. It's headed by a Labor appointee and that gives him quite a lot of power. Like he decides um, the personnel of appeal panels in the major cases and is often criticised for, you know, managing to always constitute panels in major cases that have Labor appointees in, in the majority. Right. And the, the most important case the Fair Work Commission decides is the minimum wage, the annual minimum wage review. And that is decided by a seven-person panel, three of whom are experts that are appointed for only five years by the government. And so they're all coalition appointees at the moment. And four people that are the president and three people of his choosing. Mm -hmm. And last year, it was four Labor appointees and the three experts appointed by the coalition. So Justice Ross <laughs> managed to convene a panel that had a majority of, of people that were Labor appointees. Um, and so uh, related from Vicky Perry, who uh, is from Montville in Queensland, how can someone on $200,000 be up for a $9,000 tax cut, and that is acceptable, but someone who is on forty grand is perceived by some as greedy, asking for a $2,000 pay rise, which will be fed immediately back into the economy by those just trying to make ends meet. So, I, you know, I think we understand the dynamic of that question, which is why is tax cuts okay and wage increases not? Well, I, I think it's just the political history of um, Labor having lost 2019 election on increasing, you know, a, a number of taxes and then by the middle of, of, of uh, the, the, the next year, uh, the middle of 2019, when it was an Anthony Albanese-led opposition, they were just so browbeaten into um, having to approve, you know, th this flat tax proposal for people earning between forty-five and two hundred thousand dollars. Even though, as you've noted, that is, you know, a big nine thousand dollar tax cut for people at, at the top end there. So that's why that's a bipartisan issue, despite it being a huge blowout of you know fifteen point seven billion dollars in its in its first year. Uh, but then. You know, Labor is being criticised for backing a 5.1% increase in the minimum wage, even though that is just a lot less money. Like, even if it were all two and a half million workers who have their pay set by the national minimum and the award minimums at, you know, a dollar more an hour, two, 
thousand dollars more a year, that's still only like five billion in comparison to the fifteen point seven billion for the first year of the stage three tax cuts. So tax cuts are inflationary, but it's they're not really on the table at this election because Labor were burned so badly last time. Hmm. Now, Daniel, you're up. Justin O'Malley. Uh, says, we all hear about how badly various defence procurement processes go astray or get stuffed up. We need new helicopters because the doors don't work properly with machine guns attached as just one example. There are many more that have been reported in various media over time. Over the years, it's been one procurement process mess up after another, a great financial impact for Australia, also having an impact on defence readiness. Obviously, Justin's been following the events closely. Uh, So my question is this, how is it that the Department of Defence keeps bungling these procurement processes? Very good question. Um, I think there's a few factors at play. One is these defence projects have huge time spans. So, you know, by the time it becomes clear that it's been massively bungled, we might be two or three defence ministers down the track. Um, so the, the time scales are long, so it's hard to sort of maintain accountability at a political level. Um, the, the simplest way to purchase military um, equipment is off the shelf, uh, the less risky way. But often politicians and also defence planners like to uh, modify it, improve it, you know, we're going to get better capability. We're going to take this existing platform and make it better. And that in- introduces risk. So the audit office has actually analysed some of this stuff and looked at delays. And um, they found that the more develop- developmental a project is, the more likely it is to, so, be, to have slippage. So, so, so the schedule will blow out. So by that, you mean the more of it that's actually produced in Australia or through some sovereign capability type situation, the, the, the higher the risk of bungle. It's more about if you're, if you're trying to change an existing um, design mm-hmm. to incorporate extra elements or uh, better yes, elements. But of course, local industry content is, is part of the equation. Now, I guess <laughs> I might sort of you mentioned helicopters uh, as a sort of fable, as a sort of case study into how these things get bungled and the timescales involved. I thought I might take us back to, uh, well, more than 15 years ago, uh, 31st of August 2004. I'm going to read you the first line of an ABC News story. Border security has dominated day two of the federal election campaign with the government announcing a $1 billion defence contract for new <laughs> army helicopters. <laughs> Now, this is the this is the project that this person mentioned. Um, this this helicopter thing, when it was announced, it was it was signed off just before caretaker mode began mm-hmm. and announced early in the campaign period, which sounds slightly familiar, I would say, in this <laughs> campaign. And that you know, the Howard government stressed you know there'd be local defence industry jobs as part of it. Now let's fast forward a little bit to 2014. Uh-huh. The audit office take, took a look at this project. By then, we've had it's gone from Prime Minister Howard to Prime Minister Rudd to yep. Prime Minister Gillard yep. to back to Rudd yep. to Prime Minister Abbott. Yes, and Abbott. 2014, yeah, by, we Abbott have the audit office. Yes, yeah. we have the audit office explaining that um, uh, that the program is running four years behind schedule. The costs have mounted. There's some major problems with it now. Very interesting is one of the reasons why. It says that the major problems began in the period 2002-2006. The decision by the then Australian government in 2004, that was day two of the election campaign, to approve the acquisition of the MRH-90 aircraft instead of the 
initial defence recommendation that the Black Hawk aircraft be acquired has had significant implications. They didn't know Shocked. how. Shocked. They, they didn't know. Like, are you suggesting unforeseen this is a immaturity in the design <laughs> and the high cost of sustaining the aircraft? Yeah. Now, one of the reasons that initial recommendation that was overturned is very interesting is that in December, Peter Dutton announced that this MRH. Um, uh, this MRH-90 aircraft is essentially going to be ditched and that they're going to ask the US for more Black Hawks. So we're back, we sort of come full circle. <laughs> back to where we were in so, 2004. But, you know, this is, this is an issue where, you know, it was announced just before an election, as an election campaign began. The original defence recommendation was overturned. There was definitely defence industry uh, reasons for, for part of that. Yeah. And then, you know, it takes years, years down the track for it all to catch up. Yeah. And then who are you going to hold accountable? Yeah. Oh, exactly. So, I mean, there is a major projects of concern process through defence. I think it was set up about 10 years ago. Um, that really needs to be beefed up so there's sort of greater scrutiny on the projects well, that are running yeah, behind. Some sort of continuity of accountability, which is your point, that that's at the heart of the problem, is that there's not this continuity of, of accountability. And every time an election cycle happens, <laughs> hey, presto, we go on a new cycle of this, mm. basically. Mm. Yes. That was a fun trip down memory lane. Yeah, no, no, exactly. He did deliver. Like but, Paul Keating always brings his clippings. Yeah, he, he comes prepared, this well, guy. Maybe, maybe in 20 years when we have the Orca submarines, <laughs> we might go back to some Daniel, of the coverage. Daniel, 20 years, that's generous. No, Daniel is taking notes one. and naming names. That's all I'm we'll saying. Be, we'll be back here in 2045 in the podcast yeah. cave talking about, remember back in 2022? <laughs> exactly. Remember Prime Minister Morrison? Remember him? <laughs> Cabinet papers. Have these been released yet? I don't think so. <laughs> Thank you, Justin, for such a great question. And thank you, Daniel, for such a great answer. Amy, you are up. We've got Mitch from Cleveland in Queensland. Oh, uh, great part of the world, as is Montville. Is, is this a Brisbane place? Yes. Oh, sorry. Up just outside. Sorry, Mitch. It's fine. Sorry, Mitch. <laughs> sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> Amy, my question for you, this is Mitch, um, how do you and other journalists assess the veracity of leaked internal party polling? They are no doubt leaked with an agenda. So how do you assess if the claimed polls are real? Good question. Very good question, Mitch. Um, as you say, they are always leaked with an agenda. So the best thing to do or what I do is uh, look at what that agenda is and then just cross-reference it. So nobody comes to you with polling for no reason. No one's just like, oh, look what I found. Would you be interested in having a look at this for because no I'm reason? Because I'm a humanitarian. Yes, because I'm just a good person. Mm -hmm. I want you to know this. They do it if it's bad uh, to try and either scare up support um, by basically just saying you could lose this MP to a protest vote. Is that really what you want to try and grab that underdog status? Or they do it to try and imbue confidence. Like, you know, if your candidate is a confidence player, maybe they need to think that they're doing great in the polls and the best way to do that is to have it in the in the news. Then you, you, you know, you'll go to the other side and they'll tell you what their polling is and never really matches up. Um, and if it does, then you know it's legit. If it doesn't, then it's okay. What is the agenda here? But then you have to look at it, well, you know, what is the methodology for this poll? Does it actually matter in terms of the contest? What am I adding to public interest by publishing this information? Is it just a line in the story? Is it just good for context for us to know what it is that the campaign is wanting to put out about the, their own campaign or their own electorates? Often, so often revealed 
revealing on that score. Yeah, very mm. revealing. So mm. you just weigh all of that up uh, and then you talk to your political editor. <laughs> <laughs> Who's still in the pod cave in 2027. Yes. Uh, and and you just you make a judgment from that. So basically, unless you know the methodology, unless you know the sample, unless you know how they did it and why they are releasing it, it doesn't really count for much. Mm. Josh, you're up. Aaron Spratt. Now, this is a good question from Aaron. Uh, he says, hi, team. Interesting question. I've always pondered around the election campaigns. We have politicians from various parties roaming around the country making various announcements and commitments of funding, but the hitch is they need to win. Do you feel the general public understands all the commitments announced rely on said party or party member winning and following through on the announcements? Are there ever any circumstances where announcements are binding to the incoming party, even if it's the party who didn't announce the particular grant or whatever it is? Um, that is a really good question. Um, I, I, I guess this is sort of what a lot of these local campaigns are about, isn't it? Like it's, I've committed to this and my opponent hasn't. Or if you, you know, vote for the Liberals or vote for Labor or whoever, we'll get this done and our opponents can't get this done. Um, it, it's been interesting. Both sides have been quick to to match announcements that have been made by the other side. Yep big time health announcements and those sort of things, but even down to very small local things like within hours or, or you know, very you know, minutes afterwards, there'll be a, um, a tweet or a Facebook post or a press release, something like that. Oh, you know, we'll do this as well. Yeah. I guess in terms of, you know, if, if, if your party loses, will it, stay on um, or will, it, will commitment still happen? I mean, if, if stuff's already in train, I guess, like if there's a big development happening, but I guess there are big infrastructure examples when they've torn up a contract or where they've ripped stuff out of the ground and turned it around. Yeah, so, those big contracts, it doesn't happen so often. Not, yeah, not so but often, but, but, it, but, it, but it does. I mean, like yeah. one, I guess once it sort of started, it's much harder. I mean, one of the, this is, I guess, more in Daniel's sort of patch, but like, you know, one of Albanese's big attacks of the campaign has been, oh, you know, Scott Morrison ripped up this $5 billion contract for the French submarines yeah. and it was even in the, the debate last night, I think. Um, so, the, you know, there are examples where this does that. Well, that was liberal on liberal, not liberal Labor changing government, but yeah, yeah, the same sort of same. vibe. But, same, yeah. same principle. It does there. happen. Sarah, you might have some thoughts because you're so deep in the data about election spending this time. I am swimming in a pork vat. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's pretty extraordinary the amount of money that is being committed to these local projects. And obviously, Nick Evershed and the data team have, like, pulled together this, like, phenomenal uh, piece of data gathering um, using, like, machine learning and artificial intelligence and all sorts of, you know, things that I don't understand how they work. But, um, but basically uh, um, combing through the Facebook pages where a lot of these announcements are made, so hyper-local things that press releases don't go out ministers and shadow ministers may be named but um, they, they don't put out the press releases it's all just through social media um, and it's, it's kind of staggering how um, many small projects there are things like playground upgrades and dog parks and stuff that you, you know <laughs> the federal governments probably shouldn't be funding mm. um, but both sides are doing it and I, I think there's also a bunch of interesting stuff in terms of how um, how targeted some of these things are. Like if parties are now very um, data-driven and they're looking at um, all the votes they can possibly win and um, targeting particular areas, particular booths, um, sporting clubs are obviously um, huge, uh, massive beneficiaries of yeah. this type of spending.
finding one in the story you wrote this week. Uh, you know, I hope you, I hope listeners caught up with that one. There was a, there's a crossover between sports grants projects and and uh, facilities that are being funded additionally in the campaign, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously, this, with sports rorts, there was um, a lot of criticism from the Auditor General about a lack of um, a merit based um, process for those projects to be awarded. Um, we've had a look through um, the the, uh, the election promises and a bunch of those clubs who had very low merit scores for particular projects are in line for more election cash. So, um, you know, sort of in some ways during the election period, um, those sorts of grant, uh, you know, any sort of um, uh, rigorous independent process that is normally applied to, to those sorts of grants is completely out the window and yeah. parties can just promise whatever the hell they like. Um, so, but I think it's interesting just in terms of how much they matter. And obviously incumbents have a huge advantage um, when they've been working with particular sporting groups mm. or um, ethnic groups, um, yeah. you know, when the MP's office is often the point of contact for grant op- uh, applications. Um, you know, Barnaby Joyce was pretty blatant when he was like, oh, voters love port barrelling because, you know, we deliver and, what they and want. Gladys so Berejiklian said well, something Well, Bridget, Bridget McKenzie this week said something like, oh, you know, what you'd call pork barrelling, that's what I call delivering for the nationals. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and Morrison was asked about it a couple of days ago and he was like, we're going to keep doing it. So um, it, is a, it is a vexed issue, um, but there is like literally some seats are getting half a billion dollars in commitments, yeah, like half a billion dollars. It like, is staggering. It is just astronomical. Yeah. And oh, if only we all lived in marginal seats. No, exactly. Th- exactly. There, there is actually supposed to be a difference between an election commitment that is only going to be delivered if, if that party is yeah. elected yeah. and then something for which funding is already committed. And yes. It's been one of the coalition's Morrison government sort of innovations, innovations. Uh, is to blur the lines of these things. So the sports rorts uh, and the commuter car parks were both examples where they'd actually already set up the whole program and, and committed the funding, um, even though in the case of the, the commuter car parks, they were announced as if they were election commitments yeah. and treated it at, by the department as if that were the case. Yes. But the ANO yes. said, no, you'd actually already committed this this money before but before going into the election and campaign. And I think, uh, just quickly, uh, did, I think, did, didn't this whole sports rorts thing get kicked off by Rebecca Sharkey? Following up a giant yeah, check in an election when, um, campaign, Georgina Downer, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. 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 yeah she gave the check a giant check, and she went, "Why is the local member yeah, not here?" Exactly. And you off know. we went. Now, quickly, I want to do a question from Tim Fitzsimmons, and then there's three questions that we're going to all spitball on to end uh, this episode. But Tim has asked. Do media outlets undertake a review of their election campaign coverage similar to the sorts of reviews that the major parties undertake on their campaigns after an election? If not, should media outlets do this, given the vital role we play in in a democracy? Also keen to hear the team's thoughts on the future role media can and should play in strengthening our democracy during elections, a subject that's very uh, dear to all of our hearts. Just, uh, I won't give you chapter and verse, Tim, but just a simple answer to your question. Uh, well, we certainly do. Yes. I mean, we don't get Jay Weatherall to come and do it for us, uh, but <laughs> we we do actually review from campaign to campaign what we've covered, uh, you know, how much it's been read, how much it's been shared, whether or not we think it's had an impact or not. And uh, and what we learn from campaign to campaign informs our coverage for the next campaign. I mean, part of it is a function of resources because obviously the first campaign I, I covered for Guardian Australia, there were very few employees. We're now in a very different position so we can do all kinds of iterations on audio and video and, and data and other things. 
So, um, and I think sort of the nub of your question is, are we self-critical? Well, yes, is the answer. We, we certainly are. Um, I You'd can't. be amazed at how <laughs> none of us sleep at night. No, exactly. Oh my God, yes, the garment rending never stops. No, no, but we do we do try and assess it from election to election. And if if you actually followed our coverage from election to election, you might see some core concepts that we iterate from election to election. Uh, I just draw to your attention. Tim, if you've read our Anywhere But Canberra series in this election campaign, which uh, which uh, the reporters on this pod have all contributed to, we've sort of done a version of that in every campaign, but every campaign we, we tweak it slightly just to see whether or not it has the most, you know, impact basically for readers. Um, so, and, you know, what role do we play in strengthening democracy? Well, I think this is a very short, simple, straight answer to that question. Tell the truth, Tim. That's what we try and do. So let's uh, roll on to the final three questions. Um, uh, and I loved uh, I loved two of these particularly. Let's do, let's do Diane's first. Uh, Diane wants to know why no one's talking about COVID numbers and the deaths. Uh, 19 in one nursing home in WA, not a single peep. What is going on? Diane's obviously worried. People are just over COVID, aren't we? Like, I think that's just the main thing. People, you know, both Morrison and Albanese are kind of running with a bit of a positive, you know, Al Morrison saying bad days behind us, good days ahead. Albo saying good days now, better days ahead. They don't want to talk about COVID and that sort of thing, which I think is, I think is sad. I mean, like you look at these numbers today, I think Australia's got one of the highest per capita numbers of COVID in the whole world at the moment and per capita number of, you know, recorded deaths. Obviously, obviously like there's places where they're not recording numbers as accurately, but, you know, on recorded numbers, we've got some of the highest in the whole world and no one's really talking about it. I think even today, like Morrison was in um, was in Tasmania and they were wearing masks inside, which is yeah. the first time in a while I've yes. seen either, yes, either well, um, of them wearing a mask, yeah. which, I, which I sort of took me back for a second, but... Um, yeah. yeah. Amy, you had a thought. Love. Yeah, it's, I mean, we're well on our way to 10,000 deaths in Australia, which is something that not so long ago people thought the modelling was crazy about because mm. the first couple of years of the pandemic, the main years when we were all locked down, there was uh, just over, you know, 2,000 deaths. Well, we've already doubled that uh, by April. We're, we're heading towards 7,000, I think we were 7,600 today. Uh, and it's only going to get worse because, I mean, I look at the, I do the live coverage. I look at all of the numbers each day, you know, 23 in New South Wales, 17 in Victoria, 11 in Queensland. It, it comes through and I put them up. But people, as Josh said, have, are wanting to move on from the pandemic. And I think it just must be terrifying if you're immunocompromised, just going to the shops because yeah. you're taking your life into your own hands every time that you do that. Yeah. And the fact that the simplest thing we can do is just wear a mask in those essential service areas. And even that seems too much. I mean, we've had a culture war over it. it must just be so disheartening when you look at us as a society. Mm, yeah, it is odd when you, when we think about how singular our focus was for such a long time mm. and uh, and yet you know journalistically we we've kind of moved past and I think journalistic we've moved past largely because of you know society wants to move past which is Josh's point I mean maybe it'll normalize a bit after the campaign it could be a bit of a bandwidth issue uh, but uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, I think that's the best answer we can give you, Diane. It's not a happy one, but uh, so um, upbeat first. 
in our second last question and then random in the last one, which is why I loved it. Fergus Maguire, uh, he says, my question isn't directly about the election. I wanted to ask a hopefully positive question, given so much of this campaign has been depressing. So who do we see as the most talented and effective figures in Australian politics today and why? And uh, Fergus is prompting us all sides, parties, including those up and coming. Who's got somebody that they want to upvote? Uh, I've, I've got someone. I'll, I'll spruik for Alex Greenwich, uh, the independent MP for Sydney in the New South Wales State Parliament. Uh-huh. Uh, very impressive record in terms of both having run a national campaign in the same-sex marriage postal survey, uh, but also providing very good, you know, local independent uh, representation, mm-hmm. working with uh, a Liberal government that for, for most of the time it's been um, a Liberal moderate Premier uh, that it, uh, and and working cross-party. There's a very, there's a very good um, group of cross-party MPs that have worked on, you know, LGBTI issues in, in law reform in New South Wales and other socially progressive things like um, euthanasia. Uh, and, and he's been, he's been a part of that grouping. So I, I think he's, I think he's done a very good job. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who else are we upvoting? Uh, Election-wise, I think I think Jason Clare's been one of the more effective. The Bolter. Yeah, he's come from no, not not from no. That's that's um that's uh, unkind to Jason, but um I, I think like you look at some of the the breakout sort of moments of of this campaign. I think a lot of people would have heard some of the zingers that he's made and that sort of thing. But I think on a more serious stuff, like he sort of was the one who stood up on the first morning when Albanese had COVID and um sort of tried to calm the horses and that sort of yeah. thing. Um, but um, I don't know, he's, I think he's got a really interesting and important portfolio in housing, housing. as well. Like yeah. they've made some of his policies, you know, it was a centrepiece of the um, campaign launch and I think he had a couple of policies in Albany's various budget replies over the last couple of years. So that's a tough area for Labor, I think. They, they dropped negative gearing and capital gains and those sort of policies after the last election. So um, I think it's interesting they've, they've sort of made some interesting sort of financial policies around housing in this time. And I think Jason Clare's been in the middle of them. There you go. Okay. Sarah, you got one? I mean, just on that, I think it's kind of, it's a bit weird, isn't it, that probably the most talented and effective person on the Labor side is not leading the Labor Party. Like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to assume that Albanese is too busy this week to listen to this podcast. But, um, but, you know, I think we've seen um, Jim Chalmers, we've seen Jason Clare, I think Tanya Plibersek is always a very strong and effective communicator. I don't think Albanese is their best communicator mm. and um, he's he is very has been reliant on the team around him to sell some of their messages. So mm. um, I think that's just, you know, side note observation. Um, I think on both sides there's really good people who came in in 2019. Um, I know the question sort of asked about up-and-coming um, MPs, um, you know, people like Josh Burns and Annika Wells on the Labor side. I think on the Liberal side you've had um, some quality people like Katie Allen and Celia Hammond and obviously Bridget Archer has really um, made a name for herself as a, as a strong um, local member particularly. Um, so Amy is itching to say oh, something. No, no, I was just going to say on your point about um, Albanese and uh, not necessarily being their most effective communicator, I absolutely agree with that, but I think his strength has always been as a consensus leader and I think that's kind of been the point of of gathering part of this team around him and having them actually step up and, and speak like he seemed during the, you know, the 2010 parliament, uh, you know, he was the one who was helping to broker the deals and he's really good at that sort of stuff behind the microphone, I think, rather than in front of it. Mm-hmm. Just yep. for a non-major non, non major party person, I would 
point out that um, Helen Haynes in Indi mm. who followed yeah. in the footsteps of Cathy McGowan. And and, it, and just say, sorry, just slight diversion, has the brightest consonants in the parliament, just <laughs> saying. The woman's elocution is second to none. Yes, and she's been on your pod before, I know. Um, uh, but she, you know, she's an example of someone who's, you know, really focused on the task and, and takes representing her constituents seriously. And interestingly, Indi, we hadn't, you know, before McGowan came along, we hadn't possibly thought of as something that would be an independent held seat, but people in that regional electorate have decided to stick with that mm. approach. Mm. Amy? No, I was just going to say there's no teal independence without the voices of movement. Yes, yeah, exactly. Have you and got despite anyone all in particular the, you want to... Oh, sorry, Daniel. I was just on. going to say, despite all the warnings of, of, of you know, hellfire, if, if independence, more independents get elected to the parliament, um, I'm pretty sure... Helen Haynes gets along with people across the parties and, and pursues interests of her electorate. Mm. I was going to go back and, and say Cathy McGowan and the Voices of mm. Movement because mm. of just the impact that they have had on our parliament. Uh, we've seen just the strength of the crossbench uh, after Cathy McGowan's election, uh, which continued with Helen Haynes. Then we saw Rebecca Sharkey join in Zali Stegall, and they've really laid the groundwork for people to think different about their democracy in Australia, mm. and, and I, I think that's really, really important. And if you're ancient like me, you also remember Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor uh, in, that, in that parliament. I'll just say quickly... Sarah's always already nominated her, but she's in my mind because we're recording on Thursday and I saw her today in a press conference in Tasmania, Bridget Archer. Um, uh, I think uh, has, uh, you know, models herself on Judy Moylan, who is a Liberal politician I greatly admire. I, I agree with uh, this list. Uh, I mean, uh, Annika Wells is another standout from Brisbane. I'm fully confident that Annika Wells one day will be the Prime Minister of Australia. She's got that sort of, you know, grip and grin absolutely down pat. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Bridget Archer was uh, was quite moved at a mental health announcement uh, today and I just want to take the opportunity of recognising that she is a very decent human being. So let's do that. Now, our random question to finish from Ruby. Uh, who has, as she says, a left field question. Completely hypothetical, so not offended if you don't want to touch it, but we are touching it, Ruby. Uh, the Queen has been very ill recently and even declined to speak at the opening of the Parliament for the first time. How would the passing of the monarch, monarch forgive me, impact the election in the final week and a bit? Just to be clear, we're not wishing the Queen dead, but but uh, Ruby's question is, how would that impact things? Amy, thoughts? Oh, well, first I need to say that Rihanna is my queen, um, <laughs> and, uh, along with Dolly Parton being my god. So um, I think that uh, if, if Elizabeth did pass on, that we would uh, see a pretty big um, nostalgic vote probably turn out in the last week of the election campaign. You'd see quite a lot from the Conservatives speaking about tradition and nostalgia and all the rest of it, which does tend to help the Liberal Party vote. But having said that, uh, Bob Hawke passed away in the final week of the Labor campaign in 2019, and that uh, ended up putting a bit of a stop to the Labor campaign, uh, you know, <laughs> where anyone just tooled down and started picking up the beers in honour of Hawkey um, and that had an impact against them. Mm. So who hard, knows? Hard to predict. Uh, Sarah, thoughts? Well, it would be a big thing because um, Charles would be our king. Yes. I mean, that would be the first thing to happen. The first startling um, event. And yes. how would that make people feel yes. about, um, you know, a republic? Um, I think that would be that sort of the other interesting, you know, corollary of that. Um 
And I assume Scott Morrison would have to go to a funeral. Oh. So, I yeah. mean, it is sort of an interesting question yeah. as to the actual what happens on a, and, you know, I think there's, a, I gather an emergency session of parliament would have to be called and we have a new head of state declared. So I think if it did happen, it would it would be quite a uh, yeah, spanner in the it'd works. Be, it'd be a thing. Yes, Daniel? I guess the only thing I'd add is that Labor, this election has a less less forward-leaning approach towards uh, a republic. republic. You know, they've, Albanese has prioritised an Indigenous voice to parliament. So just in the back of our heads, I guess, that's, you know, it's not as if he's going to this election with a, you know, we're going to race to end ties with the monarchy. Yes, yes, it that's true. Probably would spark a massive culture war, let's face oh, it. Oh, well, I mean, well, totally. And we are what doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 mean, I, I think the conservative side would, would try and start that culture war because they appear to be behind in the polls. But I, I think it would be like Tony Abbott rocking up on day one of the same-sex marriage postal survey and trying to make... A, a, a vote about same-sex marriage into a broader, if you don't like political correctness, you know, trying yeah. to rope in all these other issues. But really that's not the question that people were asked. And I think the death of the Queen would be similar in that they would try and make it stand for, you know, the scary future versus the nostalgia. But, like, people's first order issue is cost of living and, you know, oh my God, even no, the death Paul, of... It even would become the de- like a proxy, even, um, even, are we going to become a republic de- um, even, election? I think even the death of the Queen would... Would raise it from being a twentieth order issue to a you know sixteenth order issue is yeah. what it would do. Yeah, well, yeah. And, and don't forget, in terms of culture wars, uh, a lot of the people in the right culture war space don't particularly like Charles for his advocacy on oh, net zero and sustainable that agriculture and so on. Yeah, maybe yeah. they, maybe the woke police would be urging uh, yeah. Charles to be reining it in. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think we do. Yeah, should we like knock on wood or like throw some know, salt know, over our shoulder or something? Like this is some bad juju. I don't know. But I want to I want to thank Ruby because that one was a genuine uh, can of worms. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us, you lovely people and you lovely listeners. As we've said, uh, we are entering the final final bit of the election campaign. Thank you to my wonderful team. Who I don't know how any of us are still upright, but we are, and I'm so grateful to them, and I'm sure the listeners are too. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. We will try and do one more of these. I think we will try and do one uh, for the Saturday of Election Day. So store up your questions, get them to us. Until then, hydrate, pack snacks, be well. We'll talk to you then.